Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are now on scene with the LEO Sideshow, the one and only podcast that opens the discussions about what police do and why they do it. We are bringing a fresh new look on the relationship between the police and the public. Now for the part in our show where we must give you a legal disclaimer. Spoiler alert, people in the United States sue other people for just about anything. So therefore, the topics being discussed in the LEO Sideshow are merely the opinions of the hosts and their guests. These topics and discussions are in no way intended to be legal advice for your specific area or incident. Please consult with your local attorney or your local district attorney's office or your local police department for your specific laws and ordinances in your jurisdiction. Welcome to the next episode of the LEO Sideshow. This is a special episode. We have our first guest. We have Miss Catherine Bope. She is a local prosecutor at our prosecutor's office. Say hi, Catherine. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Patrick and Frank. Yes, we are so glad that you're here because I think the... I think our fans were getting a little tired of just hearing us talk about. What yeah, we we're, we're going to try the interview for the first time. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's just jump right into this. Uh, Patrick, why don't you go into our word of the word of the day, word of the week? Sure. So if you're looking at the title of the episode, exculpatory, what the hell did you call me? <laughs> and uh, for those who aren't familiar with the word, uh, it's an adjective meaning tending or serving to exculpate or exculpate, I guess which is uh, a verb to clear from a lot alleged fault or guilt. Okay. And uh, how this ties into our episode is we're going to be talking a little about uh, court cases, uh, social media, how that relays to the public and law enforcement and which is actually kind of become a hot topic for us and law enforcement officers uh, and around the country and, and it's uh, important to what you do on duty and off duty. So uh, for our case study of the week. Well, uh, before we go into that, let, let, we have a resident expert here now. So why oh, don't we have sorry. her go okay. into okay. exculpatory? I mean, even though I picked the court case, but go ahead. Yes. All right. So before we start delving into Brady versus Maryland, which Patrick is correct, it is basically the seminal case in terms of the evidence that prosecutors and part of the prosecution team is required to provide uh, anytime there's sort of a criminal case. Uh, there is a known source called Black's Law Dictionary. If you talk to any law student, I can guarantee you they've at least looked at it or looked it up in Lexis or Westlaw or one of the other myriad of online databases. Essentially, uh, when you're talking about exculpatory evidence, that is evidence that is tending to establish a criminal defendant's innocence, and that is pursuant to the federal rules of criminal procedure number 16. The reason we're talking about the federal rules of criminal procedure is 
is basically twofold. One, in terms of the federal rules, they lay the standard. They're basically the bottom for everything. They're universal across all the states. Now, a lot of the states choose to mirror what their local rules of criminal procedure are. After the federal rules of criminal procedure, they can tweak them a little bit, but essentially what they'll do is they'll raise the burden or they'll add things. They never subtract things from the federal rules of criminal procedure. The long and the short of it is that the prosecutor has a duty to disclose exculpatory evidence in its possession or control when the evidence may have uh, a material or may be material to the outcome of a case. And it's also referred to as Brady material. And the reason it's referred to as Brady material is because of Brady v. Maryland. Patrick, do you want to go into a little bit more about that? Sure. So, uh, Brady versus Maryland was a landmark United States Supreme Court case. It basically established the prosecution was turning over all evidence that might exonerate the defendant, what we refer to as exculpatory, okay, tying back into our word, to the defense. So in this case, the prosecution failed to do so for Brady, who was the defendant, and he was convicted. He challenged his conviction, arguing that it had been contrary to the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. So background of the case. So this was 1963. The actual case was uh, came from 1958, so five years prior. So on June 27, 1958, 25-year-old Maryland man John Leo Brady and 24-year-old companion Donald Boblett murdered 53-year-old acquaintance William Brooks. Both men were convicted and sentenced to death. Brady admitted to being involved in the murder, but he claimed that his accomplice, Boblet, had done the actual killing. They had stolen Brooks' car, the victim, ahead of a planned bank robbery, but had not planned to kill him. The prosecution in this case had withheld a written statement uh, by Boblet, the because obviously they were tried separately, confessing that he committed the act of killing by himself. So the Maryland Court of Appeals had affirmed the conviction and remanded the case for retrial only on the question of punishment. Brady's lawyer appealed the case to the Supreme Court, hoping for a new trial. As a result of this uh, landmark Supreme Court case, uh, Supreme Court held that withholding exculpatory evidence violates due process. And I quote, where the evidence is material either to guilt or to punishment. So the court determined that under Maryland law, the withheld evidence could not have exculpated or exculpated. How do you pronounce that? Exculpated. Exculpated <laughs> the defendant what was material to his level of punishment. Thus, the Maryland Court of Appeals ruling was affirmed. Brady would receive a new sentencing hearing. It's important sentencing hearing, not a new trial. So uh, when we refer to that, and I, I know Catherine could talk about more about this, but we've Police officers who have been dishonest are sometimes referred to as, I quote, Brady cops. Because of the Brady ruling, prosecutors are required to notify defendants and their attorneys whenever a law enforcement official involved in their case has a confirmed record of knowingly lying in an official capacity. So Brady has become not only a matter of defendants' due process rights, but also police officers' due process employment rights. Officers in the unions have used litigation, legislation, and informal political pressure to push back on Brady's application to the personnel files. And this conflict over Brady's application has split the prosecution team sometimes, pitting prosecutors against police officers and police management against police labor. So Brady evidence also includes evidence material to credibility of a civilian witness, 
such as evidence of false statements by the witness or evidence that a witness was paid to act as an informant. And then uh, lastly, we have, and I know Kaz going to talk about this, we have kind of official and unofficial Brady lists. So these are names of police officers whose credibility could be impeached based on truthfulness, bias, or an issue central or pertinent to the case. Now, taking this kind of back to the beginning, I'm going to let Catherine talk a little bit, but she was kind of referencing you know, this case as far as we have this standard set on the federal level. And if Catherine, if you could uh, agree with me on this, the states can actually, you know, we have the federal law, the constitutional law, but the states can actually even restrict it more, which Pennsylvania has done in a lot of things. And, um, uh, other states, uh, Florida, Maryland, whatever, they can restrict other constitutional laws and make them, you know, I guess, uh, harder for us to do our job, but better for, uh, private citizens. Yes, definitely. So uh, the best way to think of it is that the federal rules and the federal rulings from the Supreme Court of the United States or SCOTUS are always going to be considered to be the floor. And you're correct, Patrick, when you're talking about how the states can make it more and more restrictive, because not only are they allowed to make a number of decisions based upon uh, federal rules, but also federal case law. And in addition to the local state constitution um, and also uh, local jurisprudence. So a, a really good ex uh, an idea or an example of what you can utilize is the good faith exception. If you look at a bunch of different states, there's a good faith exception. A really quick example is that if an officer has a good faith belief that they are acting upon good information when they're swearing in a search warrant or something else to that effect, uh, then that search warrant can be saved even though they were acting on bad information because the officer in their heart of hearts believed that they were acting in good faith, that they were acting on something that was true. There are a number of different states that don't have the good faith exception. Um, and I can think of a couple. I think it's actually Pennsylvania is definitely one of them. I'm trying to think of a couple of other ones. But I know that, for example, Massachusetts does have the good faith exception. Federally, there is the good faith exception. Uh, so, But that's basically it. Yeah, you can always make it more restrictive. Uh, you can never loosen the rules up as long as you're so talking about the When we're talking about a good faith exception, Frank, could you give us an example of what that would be as far as a mistake by police? Uh, you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> I, was, I had a whole other thing I was going to speak about. And about well, okay. Yeah. Like, so if, if you, if I got information from another officer, I would expect that information to be good information. Is that what you're going for there? Is like that, or how about that, you know what, what we write on a search warrant, like know? information received from a citizen would be. I'm talking about more like when we type up a search warrant and we're going to hit this house, okay? Whereas, you know, and Catherine, maybe you can elaborate on this, but if we hit this house with the information provided and have the address in there, but we actually hit a different house. Does that constitute the good faith exception? Yeah. So that would be you. You have essentially sworn to something that was in the affidavit with all the information in that affidavit being uh, true and accurate with your best belief that, yes, that was right. in fact true and accurate. And if it wasn't and you found stuff otherwise, right. uh, that's what we would call an oopsie uh, in the <laughs> most uh, – 
mild of terms. And yes, the, anything that you would find as a result of that, it wouldn't be part of a, it, it would be very problematic later on down the line. Uh, but I think we are uh, getting sort of far afield and I apologize for bringing up the good faith exception. Uh, but so to delve a little bit more into Brady and what the rule that was created as a result of Brady. So essentially going back and sort of reiterating, the rule is that um, the suppression of the prosecution of evidence that is favorable to the accused upon request violates due process where the evidence is material to either guilt or punishment, irrespective of the good faith or bad faith of the prosecution. Now, I have a tendency to speak in a lot of lawyer ease, and that's basically a direct quote from Brady, but we're going to break that down a little bit. Uh, so, you mean we're going to talk like English? Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly what I want. I want some English because out of all of us three, here i am the least educated and i feel for the people right now that are like what in the heck is going on here okay. well, we're gonna break that down yes. all right let's do it all right so essentially what brady is trying to do is brady is trying to even the playing field between the prosecution and the defense they want to make sure that in order for a defendant to have a full and fair trial a full and fair sentencing that the prosecution isn't going to quote unquote hide the ball and make sure that the defense doesn't find out about stuff that wouldn't be favorable to the prosecution or sending you know a person away for an exceptionally long time so but it's not so much as keeping a level playing field it's also about doing what's right right you have evidence that will show the innocence of the who you're trying to prosecute i mean that should be given to the other side it's you know it's not i mean why would somebody want to hold that information why would the prosecution hold it well let's see uh Back in the, I'd say the 70s through the 90s were kind of the golden years of the war on crime in terms of prosecutors being a little bit less than ethical in order to make sure <laughs> that certain convictions happened, uh, especially if you want to start looking at, and I'm making no comment whatsoever on the validity of it, uh, but making a murderer and a lot of those other shows, you'll find that there have been a lot of prosecutors and a lot of police officers over the course of time all across the country who have made less than great decisions in terms of fudging something or possibly misstating something in order to put a finger on the scale to put a bad guy away. And so, yes. Now, when it comes to attorneys, we do have an ethical duty. We are required to not lie in court. We are required to be uh, fully fair uh, in all of our dealings in terms with others. And as a prosecutor, you have a certain other whole level of rules and obligations that you have to abide by. Um, so really what the Brady rule was trying to ensure is that we were abiding by due process. And that's the due process that's guaranteed within uh, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And so, again, I'm going to go back into lawyeries because who I'm trying to remember. I did listen to the last episode and someone, one of you identified yourself as constitutionalist. So we always have to go back to the Constitution, that's right? Me. All right. It's, yeah, but, it, it, it's Pat. Okay. For a second. <laughs> okay. Um, when we talk about Brady, when you talk about ethical and all that, the – founding fathers create the constitution where we everybody is innocent until proven guilty so the establishment of brady is to make it fair for the defendant 
to have a uh, fair fair trial. And uh, I would say down the road, it also eliminates a lot of possible appeal issues going forward. Right. So if you look at the due process clause, it states that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. Now, there are a bunch of different clauses and breakdowns and analysis of that constitution. uh, But essentially, when we start looking into exculpatory evidence, it has to have four separate requirements. Think of it that way. So it is constitutes as evidence. It is considered to be favorable to the defense. It is material and it must have been suppressed by the prosecution. And what do you mean by material, again, for us? Sure. Layman. So material is essentially the failure to disclose that evidence must be prejudicial to the defense in that there's a reasonable probability that had the information been disclosed, the results of the trial would have been different. Mm, so gotcha. if that information had been provided... Um, the jury would have come out a different way. The judge would have come out a different way, something else along those lines. Right. So something that would not be material is like that the, uh, like the officer just doesn't like a, uh, like bubble gum or something. Right. That's not material yeah. to the case. Who cares? Yeah, absolutely. But it might be material if you find out that the officer belongs to a white supremacist group. pregnant pause there for a minute uh (laughs) that that is a whole other can of worms i think we're going to get into a little bit later Um, okay but so all right evidence is evidence we all have watched law and order or if you talk to the young folks they've watched riverdale and understand how trials work now um (laughs) so we also have to consider what it means to be favorable to the defense that's what that's what my question was going to be how how do you make that determination sure and a lot of it is within prosecutorial discretion uh but there's also a lot of case law around it so it essentially it should help the defense or hurt the prosecution such as it would impeach a prosecutor's witness or exculpate. It, essentially, it would help the accused be found innocent or would, would remove some guilt from them. So it can be broadly interpreted as evidence that tends to exonerate the defendant from guilt. Um, and there are actually a lot of different examples of this. And I can go into those right now if you'd like to. Before you, my question is, do you- I don't know how to phrase this, but do you, is there like, could you have a ruling on whether or not something is favorable or how is that hashed out between defense and prosecution? So what a lot of prosecutors offices do now is there are certain different categories of things in which if it falls into one of these categories, you automatically provide it. Okay. And if mm. For a lot of prosecutors, especially younger prosecutors, the law of the land is that if you think it could qualify as exculpatory, right. you turn it over. So, like, you're just being safe, even if it may 
be borderline, you're just going to give it to them. Anyway. Correct. That is the okay. the most ethical way of going about things. Right. Now, there are always certain caveats that you have to consider. So, for example, if you're working with a confidential informant, you have concerns for that individual's safety. There is a there's certain information that you're not going to provide, and that's actually one of the things that comes into it is. Uh, issues with a confidential informant, systematic issues, but a lot of it is, um, it is a thing in which the prosecutor has to be cognizant of and has to basically play it safe all the time. Because if you're like, okay, there's a possibility that this could hurt me. This is a possibility. This could be considered exculpatory. I should turn it over. That makes sense. So in terms of things that could be considered to be favorable evidence, uh, promises, inducements, offers. So a couple of different examples of that is if you have uh, a witness who has criminal charges or has a pending probation violation or uh, they're a co-defendant, if a prosecutor... Which is is almost a Brady case, which is, you know, taking back to that, the prosecution didn't hand over the information like hey this guy was given uh, i don't know if it was full immunity but immunity for testifying against his co-defendant right so um for that one there was uh you need to be able to actually tell the defense attorney what all right you know hey we had an agreement that we would drop all of their charges if this individual testified um even if there's a con concept where it's like sort of i won't say a vague illusion but there has been a notion and an understanding between the parties that they will get a favorable disposition as a result of cooperating then Hmm. yes that should also be disclosed uh if as you mentioned patrick if there's any sort of discussion of immunity if a person is granted immunity that has to be provided over as part of brady material um so now is that something that is also brought up in trial Yes. Like to for the jurors to hear? Yes, it can be. That hmm. that's an ultimate decision to be made by the judge, but that's a really great example of all right, well if you have two people who and I this is completely hypothetical, but if you had uh two individuals who are both charged with the homicide of somebody and you're giving full immunity to one of the defendants to testify against the other defendant, that's really good incentive for the defendant who has immunity to lie his head off in order cool. to help the prosecution. I feel like a lot of times, uh, you know, I work drugs for a little bit and I feel like there's a lot of like jailhouse, they call them jailhouse snitches, mm-hmm. but you know, they have to be, it's hard to trust them because obviously their incentive is to cut down on their jail time or to get some incentive in jail when obviously, you know, they have nothing to lose. Why not lie? Why not try to tell, you know, Hey, this guy said this, that, or the other about, you know, the case that they're in for. Yeah. Well, and there are lots of prosecutors uh, and different district attorney's offices or state's attorney's offices who will just not use jailhouse snitches or they have a policy against it or they have to go through a really Mm. rigorous process because that information can be so tainted. I mean, I've even had in my experience where people have said, oh, yeah, you know, that uh, I, I did sex crimes for a very long time. That child rapist completely confessed to me all of these things that he did. And hey, he admitted to a couple of other girls too. But based upon that individual and based upon the uh, criminal record that person had, I 
chose not to utilize them at trial, still got convictions and didn't have to throw somebody on the stand that I didn't think was necessarily 100% truthful. Right. Uh, Hmm. So other things that you have to provide are uh, evidence of bias. So if you know for a fact that there's some sort of bias that the witness has against the defendant, um, if you have an expert or someone that you have paid to be there, that happens a lot of times uh, where you have um, uh, mainly a mental health expert, a psychologist, psychiatrist, where you're paying them stupid amounts of money to be there. Then they can go into the fact that, oh, well, didn't the how much are you getting paid all yada yada right exactly they could bias their uh their findings to whatever side is paying them but the prosecution can use that too if if there's an expert on the defense side the the correct me wrong prosecution can say well how much are you getting paid for this oh absolutely yeah yeah uh so then also a really big one the really common ones are inconsistent statements so if you know, the witness said that, oh, the car that was in the hit and run was blue at the very beginning when they were interviewed. And then they go to a later hearing and then they say, oh, actually, the car was red. That's a pretty big inconsistent statement. And that's something that we would have to provide over. Uh, so that's a really big one. Contrary evidence. Uh, Another really big one is actually repeated false claims to police. So say, for example, that you have an individual that is known to officers. I'm sure you folks have somebody like this in in mind. And uh, they'll call 911 or they'll call the police and they'll make constant false reports over and over again. And at one point, they either got it right or just got lucky. And then they end up uh, being utilized as a witness in a criminal prosecution. If when we know about that, we have to turn that over because that's someone who has. Repeated- you're like talking, you're talking about early like fairy tale or what is that? Uh, fables, the boy who cried wolf, right? Yep, exactly. Uh, And then if it's a situation where if a witness, uh, police officers, if they have grossly mishandled evidence, uh, if they've managed to uh, completely ruin a crime scene, if they've done something to jack up the evidence uh, in a pretty bad way, we have to disclose that also as well. Now, can I ask you a question on that? Does it matter if on the police officer's side does it matter if it was like intentional deceit or you know intentionally falsifying something versus i just made a mistake does it matter or not really not not particularly because you have to consider it's it could be gross incompetence because this is the very first time that this person has been to a scene they weren't properly supervised and as a result they may have destroyed evidence or it could be the grizzled vet who's done this for forever and a day and he's like ah you know what i'm gonna go ahead and plant some evidence on this guy like it really just it it doesn't it's two sides of the same coin it's still information that if we find out we'd have to provide Um, And then another really big one that's really common is what's referred to as crimes of moral turpitude. Uh, That is a big fancy word for 
if you have convictions for things that involve being deceitful or um, stealing from somebody else. So we're talking about if you've stolen from Walmart, if you've written a bad check, if you've lied to police. Right, exactly. So if you have convictions for that, those are crimes of moral torpitude. Uh, They're frequently known shorthand as crimens. And if we're planning on calling one of those witnesses, we have to provide a... uh, a list of all of those crimens uh with and there are a bunch of different kinds of rules in terms of if it's a misdemeanor so like crimen, i think when i was taught it was called what criminal falsely or something like that crimen's falsely yeah. yeah yeah so like you we actually discussed this in episode one you get you initiate a traffic stop on somebody and they lie about their name mm-hmm. and they can be charged with that and, and even though it may not be the biggest crime in the world that remains with them as a person who need if they need to testify in their own defense, correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, crimens are, are very common. Um, however, there's a lot of stuff that people think of as being like, oh, well, that's information that should always be provided to the defense where it's not construed as favorable evidence. And again, your mileage may vary depending on what state you're on, but generally things like inadmissible evidence. So a really good example is polygraphs. And it's amazing because the number of times that people are saying, I'll take a poly or something else along those lines. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to tell you right now, there's no court of law that is going to allow you to admit the results of a polygraph. Hey, that sounds like a good episode talk. That does sound like a good episode talk. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting background in terms of uh, polygraphs. but Because I, uh, people are probably like, yeah, why don't, why don't the cops just put people through a polygraph and just solve all these crimes? Well, you have to agree to take a polygraph also. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So other things that would not be considered to be favorable evidence, uh, stuff that wouldn't qualify for Brady, uh, neutral or inculpatory evidence. The defendant's never going to get upset if you decide to not include a smoking gun when you're prosecuting him. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. He. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, then, so, uh, let's say you have a fairly lengthy involved investigation and you have a bunch of false starts. You don't have good leads. You have some false tips, that sort of stuff. Things that didn't end up becoming relative, uh, relevant or are continue to be highly speculative in regards to that investigation. You don't have to turn that over. That's not considered to be a Brady violation. Okay. So like when we have all these tips pour in about a certain crime, and 90% of them are crap. We don't have to include any of those crap tips. No. Uh, and then another one, and this gets this gets a little tricky because I'm going to go back to the lawyer thing of if you ask me a question, I'm probably going to say it depends 90% of the time. Uh, but in terms of if you have a witness that is physically ill, mentally ill, or has some sort of emotional instability, that information does not have to be disclosed unless it affects a witness's ability to perceive, recall, or describe events. Mm. Okay. So So I understand why you said it depends because you really have to take it fact, fact by fact and the basis for bringing that information up. Right. So if you have a witness who is... Uh, horrifically, horrifically 
uh, nearsighted and they have to wear corrective lenses or they have to wear contacts in order to see something and then they observe something and they weren't wearing their corrective lenses or glasses and it if they weren't wearing it there's no chance in heck they're going to see it it was just a blur yeah that's something you kind of have to disclose if you find that out um yeah that's like my pet peeve people who drive without their glasses yeah Yeah. Um, and another thing that people try to do, specifically defense attorneys, is they'll very frequently, they'll try to uh, attack witnesses by saying that they're mentally ill by attacking depression, anxiety, that sort of thing. Mm. Well, hey there, uh, depression and anxiety generally don't affect an individual's ability right. to perceive things. Now, if right. they are severely mentally ill and they frequently have delusions or hear voices, again, that's a different situation that may have to be disclosed. So you're saying being a lawyer is really easy. Totally. <laughs> and cheap. Yes. Well, I mean, gentlemen, uh, I know from our practice, you have certainly met attorneys who you really wonder how they pass the bar. Uh, I mean, you just have to be yeah. a good test taker to t- uh, pass law school and pass the bar. So, um, hey, Pat, I got a joke for you. What do you call 20,000 lawyers buried under this, under the sand? What? A good start. Oh, Oh, well, you know, you did, you did have a colleague quotes, uh, Shakespeare at the beginning of the last episode, and Shakespeare was the first one to say, "Kill all the lawyers." Uh, <laughs> now you know it's just lawyers and cops are in that same thing where it's like, "Hey, I really don't want them, or I don't want to be around them." But yeah, when I actually need one, I need one, and they have all the information to help me out. Yeah. Um, and uh, so going back really quickly, there is some stuff that isn't considered to be evidence at all. So for example, uh, Frank, if you came to me and you said, Hey, you know what? I think this case is absolute crap. That opinion specifically right there, that is not Brady material because your, your opinion in regards to a strength of a case isn't relevant. Hmm. Now it doesn't matter like if I'm the police chief or the detective supervisor or even the case officer? No, because as a prosecutor, if I think, hey, you know what? I, again, once again, with our my ethical duty, I believe I have all of the evidence that I need to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm going to go ahead and prosecute that case. Even if you think, hey, you know what, Kat? This case is complete and utter crap. I really don't think you should go forward with this. If I look at it and I'm like, hey, you know what? I disagree with Frank. I'm going to go for it. I don't have to include your specific opinion as Brady evidence. Hmm. But it's, what about your opinion about the case? Well, <laughs> if I didn't think it was a good case, it wouldn't be getting prosecuted. Well, I understand that because sometimes we're you know dealt the hand we're given as far as the case and the facts, and regardless of what we do, it just just not might not be the greatest case, even though you know we tried our best. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of other things. So, for example, uh, work product. So when you take notes or if a prosecutor is taking notes in order to prepare for a case or something like that, that is not Brady material. That does not have to be provided. Uh, I didn't think about that. 
Yeah, but it is really interesting because a lot of times defense attorneys will ask for, you know, a detective's notes or an officer's right. notes. Yeah, a field notebook. Yeah, right. But as long as you've included all the pertinent information in your uh. incident report, your notes are totally cool. Hmm. I did not know that. I did not know that either. Uh, let's see. Other things would be rumors and speculation. Uh, mm. Totally not Brady material. Um, and I hope that's why we have hearsay. Right. Hearsay rule to eliminate rumors, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then pending investigations. So pending investigations are not Brady material, um, in, at least in most states. Well, I could see that too, because you can't, you know, when until you, proven. Yeah, you can't use somebody's prior convictions unless they've been actually convicted or pled guilty against them. Right. Yeah, but you can't even do that in a normal court of law. You can't bring that up. Pending investigations? No, you generally would not bring pending investigations because it's twofold. One, it would compromise the pending investigation uh, and therefore hamper your execution of bringing justice. But the other thing is that if it's a pending investigation, even involving the same defendant, um, and, and this is probably an entirely other separate thing involving uh, bad acts and character evidence, but it ends up going down this very ugly, slippery slope that you wouldn't even want to go into. Yeah. So in, like kind of in, in layman's terms, uh, if you have a individual has been popped for DUI three times in a month, well, technically, their third one is still their first offense because the prior two, they haven't actually pled guilty or been convicted of. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So for the, for the audience listening, that's kind of what we're talking about. But yeah, in in the 20 minutes that it just took me to describe all those different things. Yeah, that that's Brady evidence. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, and when we discussed this earlier, getting back to Brady, you know, tying that all in. And just like I said, um, the prosecution in the Brady case had withheld a written statement by Boblet, the guy that was technically, I guess, given immunity for confessing that he had committed the act of killing by himself, which would have been deemed exculpatory for the defense to say, hey, wait a second, you know, my guy's getting tried, but your guy's actually written a con confession here. Right. So that's how it all ties back to that main case. And it's just progressed since then. But it, the main reason we wanted you on, on this is how does this affect police officers specifically on duty and off duty? Sure. So in, in on duty, uh, it affects you quite a number of ways. So if there are what are referred to as Brady lists or no call lists. It depends on your jurisdiction. Um, I know that the jurisdiction that you folks work in, you refer to it as a Brady list. And basically those are officers who have been deemed to be unreliable for one reason or another, which means you would not be called as a witness. And if you were an individual who brought charges, your charges would probably get a, separate independent look depending on the severity of them um, because you've been deemed to be untrustworthy for one reason or another. And that can be a whole variety of things. Uh, I previously worked in a jurisdiction where if there were two officers that had been part of 
the local drug task force. And each of them independently in separate hearings had uh, been deemed to have perjured themselves on the stand. Ooh. Right. And, and uh, really quickly, perjury is basically you have lied under oath. And for a police officer, that is very, very bad. So anytime those officers even appeared in a police report, we would have to provide them this massive packet, which was basically a ream thick, explaining who the officers were, when they had deemed to be perjured, the incident in which they had uh, perjured themselves, what they had specifically perjured themselves for. And so any case, anytime they even showed up, we would have to provide that. And our office would have to have a conversation about okay, is this person a necessary witness? Do we need to call them? Or is there another officer who has not been perjured that we could list instead and we could call them as a witness? Now, so it, but if this officer who had been found to perjure himself, would, uh, if they were just involved with the case, would you still have to show that as exculpatory evidence to the defense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But you're saying it might just be easier to not have him even go on the stand. Exactly. But you'd still provide everything in the meantime. Yes. So even mm -hmm. if their name just popped up in the police report, we would automatically hand everything over. Wow. Um, in the current jurisdiction that I work in, we don't, I, we don't necessarily have an official Brady list, but there are a number of officers that we have decided not to call for one reason or another. Uh, and it really in my experience, I've been a prosecutor for almost eight years now. The reasons why we don't call officers essentially run the gamut. Uh, we have officers who have been uh, convicted of crimes of various varieties of things. So I've had officers who've been convicted of theft. I've been officers who have been convicted of domestic violence situations. I've had officers who have had gun offenses uh, drug offenses, people who end up having drug addictions, they end up going into rehab. Um, those are all different individuals who we no longer call because for one reason or another, their testimony would be deemed to be unre unreliable. And it goes back to what we were describing previously. If you have uh, an individual who has a drug addiction, if you're on drugs, it's going to affect your ability to recall things. It's going to affect your ability to uh, see, hear, etc. depending on what you're on. Um, so we don't want to call that officer. If we have another officer who has been convicted of domestic violence, well, if it's a situation where it's a resisting arrest case or something else along those lines, then there's the whole question of undue force that ends up opening a whole other can of worms. We don't want to bring that in. Uh, so there are a whole host of reasons why we wouldn't necessarily want to call an officer. Um, and it, have you ever seen this, uh, excuse me, have you, you ever seen this actually where the, the prosecutor's office tells the police agency, like, you need to just get rid of this guy because they're causing problems with every one of our cases? I have not seen that, but I'll be perfectly honest. I think that might be one of those decisions that's almost exclusively reserved for the state's attorney or the district attorney. Uh, that's a very, very high level decision. Um, 
And while, again, even with my experience, there have been very few times where I, I've ever been part of a conversation or, and I certainly don't know of anything where the DA has basically gone to someone and say, hey, you need to fire this guy because they're trouble. Oh. Okay. So most of the time for the prosecutor's office, it's more of just making sure all this information gets put over there and that it might, you might have to jump through some more hoops to prosecute the case. Not necessarily it's been destroyed by this certain officer. Correct. Most time. Correct. Okay. And the one thing that actually just popped in my head when you're talking about this is, you know, if I'm an individual and I was, you know, convicted of a theft, that would probably prevent me from actually becoming a police officer because of that prior conviction, correct? Probably, yeah. It depends on whatever your local jurisdiction. I have yeah. had a couple of officers who have had like DUIs and thefts in their past and they still became officers that was in a separate jurisdiction, not the jurisdiction I'm in now. But uh, it, it really just depends on whatever your local department requires for hiring. Hmm. And that's why, folks, we have incredibly in-depth background checks. Right. Yeah. So, but, so, so that's more of the on duty. So now we want to get into kind of the elephant in the room, which is how does a police officer need, to, well, I wouldn't say worry, but how should they conduct themselves off duty? And I guess this ties into social media. Sure. So I actually do a lot of trainings for law enforcement officers. Uh, I've done it for detectives. I've done it for, you know, sort of beat cop Leos, everyone. And I actually do it for the public as well. And essentially what I say is that if you are not comfortable walking into the courthouse and screaming whatever you just tweeted and or posted <laughs> on your wall or whatever meme you just shared at the top of your lungs, you shouldn't post it. If it's a situation where you would feel uncomfortable telling your grandmother what you just posted, you shouldn't be posting it. And it's, I think it's sort of an unfortunate situation in that, yes, do Leo still have the First Amendment? Do you still have uh, the ability to speak your mind and speak freely? Absolutely. However, you also need to remember that you are held to a higher standard than most civilians in that you need to remain unbiased and you need to be able to have that perception and in practice as well of being fair and keeping whatever your own personal opinions are out of the execution of your duties. If you go ahead and share a racist and or sexist meme on your Facebook page or on your Instagram account, that is going to not only reduce your credibility with the public, but that's going to reduce your credibility with, um, with the others around you and with judges. So have either of you heard of the Plain View Project? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, just for the audience, this came out uh, what, early 2019. Yeah. Past summer. Okay. And uh, yeah, so it was a plain view doc, uh, what they call themselves a plain view doctrine. And I think they, they took about two years to compile all of this evidence where they, uh, they went through Facebook groups 
We found out who were members of these groups and if they were police officers and they found a bunch of police officers who have posted some inappropriate stuff or were members of inappropriate groups and kind of put it out there for everybody to see. Yeah. And there were, let's see, uh, one of the police departments that was covered by the Plainview Project was actually uh, the St. Louis Police Department. Um, And they've had a number of different issues going on through the years. There have been lots of accusations in terms of them being racist. Uh, And I think I weren't they the ones that actually kicked off the Black Lives Matter movement? I want to say that it that was the very first one. That, that was that that was it was I mean right outside Ferguson. Right, right? So that, that was, was Ferguson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, the uh, St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kimberly Gardner in June of 2019, as a result of the posts that were found in the Plain View Project, she added 22 officers onto their no call slash Brady list. So wow. based upon Things that they had posted and seen, a lot of officers ended up, you know, they they can't do a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, how, how, would, how would you do your job if you can't testify in court? I mean, unless you're like relegated to some sort of desk duty or something, you can't really do your job. Well, and even think about it that way. So let's say you end up being the guy who's in charge of all the evidence. You're the one who yeah. has to sign in and cite out every single piece yeah. of evidence. If someone ends up challenging chain of custody and then they find out you're on the no call list, that's pretty problematic, too. Yeah. And I even know that uh, a couple of local newspapers in and around the area from where we were, they decided to do their own version of the Plainview project. And they ended up finding a bunch of other local uh, police officers. I think they basically just took a roster of every single police officer from every department and went through and looked through all of them in social media and then posted all of their stuff that they found. And there was a whole hullabaloo about that as well which i found funny if you actually and i'm not bashing the media or anything like that but when you actually read the news article it said like police officers post inappropriate you know images or possible racist things you actually read like read through the article and it says well we found 99 percent of police officers only post stuff about their families and are appropriate with this and so it's like well, the heading is screaming, you know, news, uh, police officers are racist, posting appropriate stuff. And you actually look at the fine print, it's like, well, actually 99% of them are just posting like what I what I had to eat or yeah, just- pictures of your meals. Yeah. What else yeah. do you post? So, you know, it, it, when we're talking about all this, you know, we're just saying you know, this is the vast minority of police officers and law enforcement related. It's just we're trying to help give, you know, insight to the audience of, you know, if they've never been familiar with Brady slash how social media can affect us is off duty. Well, one of the things that we haven't touched on yet is, is this kind of slapped law enforcement in the face? I don't know, right around like 2015 ish, 2014 ish, because for the most part, all the police officers thought that posting on social media is your first amendment right to free speech. And next thing you know, Brady came in and started, you know, having cops put on this no call list or this Brady list. And then it started to have the you know solicitor's office involved. And now, now police departments are coming up with policies that regulate your off-duty time or what you are, are, are not allowed to post onto Facebook or Instagram. And right. now officers and unions are getting involved saying, hey, you can't regulate you know, these guys when they're not working, but 
they can because it directly affects the job. Yeah. When I was uh, going through my master's program, one of the requirements I had to do was actually create a social media policy. And it was like back then, you know, it was kind of like almost like you look at examples online of police uh, general orders and maybe like a paragraph or two. But now you like even look at our, you know, uh, department's general orders in relation to social media. It's like three or four pages of specific things like, hey, you can't use, you know, our you know, our patch or, or, or badge on any type Name. of costume without prior approval. You can't do this. You, you know, anything viewed as this. And it's just a lot of convoluted stuff. But just like Catherine said, when in doubt, you know, if you don't want, if you can't say it or describe it, then what's the point of posting it? I mean, as for me, I personally uh, deleted, uh, deactivated my Facebook account. And uh, just prior to all that, nonsense about the plain view project and i just knew ahead of time that it would have been yeah not that you had anything to hide but you no, just, just you didn't even want to go through correct. the yeah. the you know, well, you know being questioned okay. about your plain like, food i hate seeing what people people post about what they cook who oh, politics drove me nuts what you know i don't care what you're doing like two hours ago i don't care that you just had a coffee like why do i need to know that you know what i mean i, I, care. I care you should really avoid my instagram feed because it's basically nothing but my dogs well, and the coffee i'm drinking so well your husband told me about your tiktok problem so i i fully admit that i have a tiktok problem i don't <laughs> deny this whatsoever uh are you are you doing like those dances oh no no i i'm i'm a lurker i only watch other people's tiktok videos i do not create any of my own um but you know it's it is actually very similar for prosecutors as well. I have actually known a number of prosecutors who have gotten in trouble for what they have shared on their personal social media. I know people who have had disciplinary uh, repercussions for things that they have posted in regards to their social media in relation to their job, in in relation to cases that they've prosecuted, which is very, very problematic. um, Because once again, there are prosecutorial codes of ethics. There are ethical rules where we are not allowed to comment on any sort of active case. We can only comment on cases once they've completed. And it restricts us in certain ways as well. And I think it sort of comes from a, a different perspective. Yes, is it infringing upon my ability to exercise my free speech unless I want to create a fake account um, and I want to utilize a fake name and never post my face and then only post the things that I, you know, want. Yes, I could do that. Uh, And yes, that wouldn't necessarily be reflecting my own personal opinions in regards to the office that I work for. Um, However, at the same time, I think and this is a controversial statement, but I often consider that prosecutors are law enforcement officers. We're all part of the same team. We all have. Oh, we are. Yeah. And that's and that's why I say I was thinking that you know the LEOs have kind of complained about our free speech, but in reality, you're talking everybody like uh, probation, the the attorneys, probably on, the attorneys on both sides, even the judges. You know, there's there's so many people involved in that are going to be held to the same standard that, uh, you know, you can't be posting anything you want. Right. Exactly. 
Plus, Catherine, you have a badge, right? I do have a badge, and I can't use yeah. my badge I mean, on social media at you're all. You're law enforcement. You're law enforcement, baby. <laughs> right. But it, I, I do think that as of right now, for better or for worse, the American public in a lot of different ways has lost their faith in not only uh, – police officers for a number of different reasons, but they've lost faith in prosecution. They've lost faith in the justice system overall. And even though it means that we have to forego sharing what we would think to be an incredibly funny meme about Pokemon, possibly, (laughs) uh, we shouldn't be doing those sorts of things because what we need to be doing is we need to be inspiring confidence in the public that we are always going to be as unbiased and that we are going to be professional professional and fair arbiters of the law. That's something that's actually really important. Such a big part of being a Leo is being able to utilize our discretion in terms of the charges that we bring, the cases that we prosecute, and doing it for the betterment of the community and justice as a whole. The concept of holistic justice, while it is considered to be a more uh, progressive prosecutor stance, it's something that a lot of DAs want to be doing. We don't want to just be throwing everybody in jail. We don't want to be targeting a specific group, regardless of age or sex or sexual orientation, anything like that. We just want to make the world a better place that we're living in. And that may be like a little Bambi-esque coming from me. Uh, but in order for us to do that, we have to be able to inspire confidence in the public that Whatever our personal opinions are, it doesn't matter what my political affiliation is, what my sexual orientation is, what my race is. A a victim should be able to come to me and know that they are going to feel safe and we're going to try to get them the justice they deserve. A defendant should be able to come into the criminal justice system and be treated with the same rights that are afforded to them by the constitution, both the state and local one, regardless of whatever uh, biases uh, Leo may have. No, yep. I mean, that's, that's kind of why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> Again, we, you know, sometimes we talk about the negatives, but like I mentioned, you know, this blast of this article about cops with, you know, poor social media, uh, posts and memes and all this stuff and it's like you look through it and it's like well 99 percent of them are just posting about their families and you know what they had to eat and all that kind of stuff and it's like well yeah sometimes all the the, the bad comes out in the media but most of us just trying to act professional and go go home at the end of the day right and you know it it is I think in a lot of ways, what we've been talking about, we make it sound like it's super easy to get on a Brady list. Like if you screw up once that you're never going to be called as a witness again. And I want to reassure a lot of the LEOs out there that if you make a mistake and you're honest about it, you're not going to get thrown on a Brady list. That's not going to happen. Frank and I will both admit that we've made mistakes over the years on cases and it happens. We're human, you know, Yeah, right. You just own up to it and you move on. Exactly. That that's the big thing. And, you know, there are a lot of uh, 
do not call lists that are actually made available to the public. So for example, the Philly DA's office back in 2018, I want to say, they put out a list of 66 officers and the reasons why uh, they are part of the do not call list. And a lot of them are criminal convictions. So, hey, guys, don't commit crimes like the folks you arrest and you're probably going to be okay. Right. Awesome. Well, what else do we have? I think that's it, man. Cat. Anything? I, I think that's it. Although I think that there have been a lot of topics here that we've discussed that should definitely be spun out later on down the lines. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, we, we've just kind of touched on social media. I mean, we can do a at least two or three episodes just on social media in and of itself. Well, and yeah. not just bad, but good use of it for law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, there's tons of really good stuff that law enforcement can use. Again, I don't know how much – I don't know if you guys are denizens of the internet, but there's actually a – are you familiar with the Dolly Parton meme that's going around right now? No. Okay. No. It okay. Look, look it up a little bit later. But there's actually a police department out of the UK that's using the Dolly Parton meme to help identify people with warrants. So, <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. It's great. Um, and you know, another thing that is really important that we should talk about at some point, if you're willing to have me on again, is uh, social media and keeping yourself safe. As an LEO, a lot of people forget about all the information that they put out on themselves and how that can really be a danger to uh, LEOs, regardless of if you're a uniformed officer, an undercover officer, and the danger that can pose to your family. Wow, that sounds amazing. You know what I, you know what I also want to talk about? What? The dark net. <laughs> Everybody wants to know about the dark net. <laughs> We 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 can talk about we can talk about the dark net. We can talk about the deep web. Yes. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm not familiar with the the dark net. I mean, I know what the our law enforcement role in that is as far as you know those bad people. But I just like when people refer to the dark net, the black market, basically, right? Yep, Bitcoin. Oh, that's not the dark net. <laughs> that's how you pay for stuff on the dark net. I have Bitcoin. <laughs> you, you, you like the dark net. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Hey, we, we got to give thanks to Catherine for coming on our, our show. And we I guarantee you we're going to have her back as long as she's willing to come on. It was Aren't an absolute. Catherine? It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Frank. Yeah. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, and thank you to your husband for allowing you to come on to with uh, with us tonight. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure she asked for permission. Yeah, I, I highly doubt. Yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah. We'll have to bring him on as the the comic relief at some point. It'll be uh, good. You know, actually, we did talk about that. Like, you know yeah. how Conan had Annie Richter sit off to the side and just laugh for for us. We could probably have him on just to laugh. Yeah. You know, basically, I think with the two of you, you're kind of like straight man, straight man. And when we end up bringing uh, Alan on, Alan's going to end up being, uh, you know, he's he's the funny guy. He's the one that's going to be adding some weirdness to this. Yeah, okay, we could. I mean, it is a sideshow, so yeah. we do want to get right. a little weird. So awesome. Well, uh, to finish this off, make sure that you click like, subscribe. Rate us on wherever you listen to your podcast at 
And please comment. Uh, we want to hear what you think about Miss Catherine Bope, because uh, we certainly want to have her on again, and we want to know what you think. So, all right, signing off. Signing off. Signing off. Signing off.